welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioural science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behaviour. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. In today's episode, we're going to be diving into the surprisingly powerful effect of social norms that seem to almost effortlessly shift environmental behaviour. If you haven't heard of social norms before, what it means is, this is what everyone else is doing, or this is what is expected of you in this situation, or here's an example that we want you to emulate. And social norms can be implemented in lots of different ways. A social norm could be a picture of someone doing the green behaviour. It could be a sentence saying most people around you are doing it. It could be real humans performing the green action for others to see. Or it could be a leaderboard, a percentile score, a benchmark or a comparison report showing how one person or a group compares to the others. Our guest today is research psychologist Dr. Alessia Dorigoni from the Neuroscience Consumer Lab at the University of Trento in Italy. Alessia is not just a psychologist, though. She's also a fine artist and a behavioural economist specialising in nudges. We're going to be exploring Alessia's recent paper titled Water Bottled or Tap Water, a descriptive social norm-based intervention to increase a pro-environmental behaviour in a restaurant. The type of norms we'll be exploring is how a written norm in the form of a poster in a restaurant that just simply said two out of three people prefer tap water. That's it. And it effectively encouraged people to order less plastic bottled water. What's really cool about social norms is that they are so easy to weave into what you do, and they're probably free. I wanted to explore this topic because it's an example of how there is so much low-hanging fruit out there for us to influence Social norms are studied a lot in environmental psychology because they so reliably work to get a behavioural result. And they seem to typically get about a 10% to a 40% boost in pro-environmental behaviour. This social norm messaging can genuinely have a big impact. Imagine if you're a sustainability manager at a big hotel chain or you oversee software that thousands of people see. This one change, this one ingredient could have a very real and enormous impact when implemented at scale. And you should be using it too, anywhere you can, in pictures, in words, in charts, and as our guest discusses, on a public poster. Alessia and I talk about the theory of nudges, the neuroscience of why norms work, and the surprising best formats in which to describe the data so it has the most psychological influence. Now let's dive into the conversation with Dr. Alessia Dorigoni. Welcome to the show, Alessia. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me all the way from Italy today. The first question I always ask every guest on the show is that the people who listen to this show, we are all professional sustainability people. We work in climate change, city governments, climate task forces, recycling managers, but Yet in our profession, most of us don't know about behavioural psychology, environmental psychology. I don't think the term nudges is a very well-known phrase or what nudge psychology is. For all of us who are trying to save the planet, why is that a problem if we are not employing this nudge psychology that you specialise in? 
Can you also just explain what a nudge is? Like, how do you explain nudge economics, nudge psychology? What is it? Where did it come from? So I think the image that uh, Thaler put on uh, on his book uh, on the nudging strategy, nudge, the nudge it's called, it's really, it helps to understand the meaning of nudge. So there is the an elephant, the mother of a, a child of an elephant that tried to push the son in a really nice way with uh, his nose. So it's... Oh, the, the trunk, the nudge, the nudging, the trunk. Yeah. Okay. And the, the meaning of nudge is exactly this one. Try to push someone in a really nice way and really soft way that he doesn't even understand that he's pushing from someone. So this is the meaning of nudging. Try to understand the uh, psychological mechanism and the processes beyond our behavior in order to use them to somehow affect their changing, to change behavior. So it's like, uh, uh, know why, which are the psychological mechanisms and uh, use them to drive the behavior in the, dire- in the direction that we want. So I think that's exactly what the elephant was trying to do. So try to push the child somewhere, but in a really nice way and a soft way. So that's what we try to do without using uh, like fines or without using uh, rewards. We try to change the behavior of the people. A question that comes up a lot when we look about how to influence people's behavior that comes up from our community, which says like, why do we need to look at behavioral psychology or these nudges or these like soft, gentle ways of influencing people. And I think some popular examples might be putting healthier food in an easier to reach place. You know, if the food is placed close to you, you'll eat that more than if the unhealthy food is placed farther away. And there's like, even with the recycling bins, there's another one that if the recycling bin opening is like larger than the trash bin, then people will put it more in the recycling bin or the compost bin. There's like very simple, easy ways of kind of changing the physical environment or the messaging environment to get people to do stuff. But then people ask like, well, why do you need to do this stuff? Why don't you just like make it illegal, like make it too expensive? Why don't you just stop it completely? But I think what people perhaps don't realize when they're asking this question is that those more extreme measures like rewards, like paying people to put on solar or change an electric car or banning something completely, getting that through policy or making something really expensive. I mean, they're often just not available to us, like environmentally. Like, how would you explain that that sort of place where nudges fit in the ecosystem where, sure, it would be nice to make all the plastic completely illegal and to make it perhaps $10 a bottle, but like that's not available to us. So the nudges seem to be this like low-hanging fruit, this very easy, cheap thing that we can use. It's available to us immediately. And I'm sorry if I'm just totally answering the question while I'm kind of asking it, but I'll stop now and let you, what your thoughts on it. No, no, I think there are two main problems related to this point. The first one is that there is an ethical problem. So I think that you can't uh, make illegal everything. So there is this uh, free will problem related to the fact that people want to decide for themselves. So they want to decide uh, to eat healthy food instead of uh, unhealthy food. They want to decide uh, in their own life. So it's not that you solve the problem, put everything uh, illegal. 
And so there is also an ethical issue related to nudging strategies because uh, they say, okay, but you are forcing me somehow to do something that I wouldn't do. Or uh, I know that we are forcing them to follow a good uh, road. But sometimes there is this problem related to the fact that maybe they wouldn't do something like that. So they say, we want to decide and we want to be pushed. So it's an ethical problem related to nudging and to decide if something is legal or illegal. That it's related to the free will of the people and it's related to the decision-making process. So this is the first point. And uh, secondly, there is uh, another important issue related to the fact that even if it's illegal, people still continue to uh, don't adopt pro-environmental behavior, such as, for example, throw the cigarette uh, somewhere and not in the bin, not in the garbage. It's illegal to do that, but still there are a lot of people that continue to do it. So, for example... An aging strategy on this topic was uh, put two different beans and say, uh, which uh, player do you prefer, Messi or Ronaldo? And putting the cigarette in one bean or in the other, they decide and they show their preferences, uh, football preferences. So that's a nice way to make the people follow the the right direction. So put the cigarette in the bean, but uh, uh, without uh, a fine or without uh, a reward, like uh, I give you 10 euros if you do that. So I think uh, the first ethical problem is the one that I mentioned. And uh, secondly, uh, <laughs> the second point is that even if it's illegal, people still continue to don't differentiate the uh, trash or to throw or to waste food or to opt for um, plastic instead of another material more ecological. So I think Nudge strategies are really helpful from, for this kind of thing because uh, unfortunately not all the people are so aware of the global warming or of all the problems related to don't adopt for environmental behavior. So they don't care. Even if there is a fine, they don't care. So I think it's uh, in this kind of situation, uh, nudging strategies can really help to make the difference. Yeah, and I think even if we sort of the goal is to completely eliminate certain non-environmental things like plastics or, you know, fossil fuels, the nudges I see really as a staircase. Like they can kind of pave the way, kind of lubricate or kind of massage everybody into a certain way of being. So, for example, uh, polystyrene, you know, foam containers, they can get banned, plastic bag bans, etc. So they can take place. So it's not that we're not so much saying, oh, let's make it really easy for everybody so you can just be totally non-environmental if you want to and then these people over here can do it. It's kind of like a way of pushing towards a society that can accept all of these changes. And also like every... Every situation is so different. Like you brought up the example of the cigarette butts. I was just thinking in San Francisco, putting compost into the regular trash is illegal. Like they passed some ordinance or law that you have to put your food waste into this little green bin and a separate truck that picks up organic waste picks it up. And they send out letters that say like you have to do it or whatever. But I doubt that every single person and everybody lives in apartments 
all puts their food waste and you've got to get the special plastic bag. You have to go out and buy, and they're like, you know, 10 or $15 to buy these like special compostable plastic bags and use them. In that situation, there's almost nothing that you can do apart from nudges to try to solve that. And that's a significant environmental issue, like food waste and landfill producing methane. The system's kind of already done everything it can do for you. Like the only thing left is nudges in that scenario. So all these kind of environmental situations kind of require their own kind of recipe approach with like all the things put together. So I think you mentioned another important point that it's the fact that they have to pay for the plastic bag. This is really uh, an issue because also here when I went to ask to the restaurant owners, uh, can we try to do this uh, nudging strategy in, in your restaurant? They replied to me, some of them, not all, but I sell 500,000 bottles of water per uh, season. Why should I, for one euro each, why should I lose uh, 500,000 euros like that? There is a lack of knowledge also about why our behavior matters. It's not only a drop in the ocean. It's also our behavior matters like the behaviors of, of all the others. And it's the same too. Why should I buy the plastic bags for recycling? I think uh, some of them, maybe they don't even uh, go and buy the plastic bag. Maybe it's illegal also that. But uh, it's because uh, they don't really understand uh, the value of their own behavior. They just uh, maybe are more focused on uh, the monetary part of the process, let's say, and they don't want to lose money also. So there are a lot of variables that um, occur all together. I think... Uh, most of the time, the people don't understand that their single behavior matter. So, for example, the owner of the restaurant that replied to me, uh, I couldn't really say anything because the tap water is, uh, is for free for the clients. The owner of the restaurant has to pay for the tap water. So, if you see the two different uh, like situations, one where he has to pay for something and in the other where he gain uh, like uh, 500,000 euros, of course, he decide to dec decide for the other. There are a lot of variables um, that drive this kind of uh, behaviors and it's really a complex uh, question. Yeah, it really makes me think that I, um, I've been using this recipe metaphor like for the last year, like saying that if you want to put together a change strategy, it's like a, a recipe that needs multiple ingredients. And when you put them together right, like maybe some education, some knowledge, some nudges, some financial incentive, some rewards, like you've got to structure the, the whole thing right. Because I think people can just rely on these kind of assumptions that, oh, we just need to make it expensive. That's a big assumption. Oh, if it's just as expensive, people won't do it. Or if it's just illegal, or if people just knew about it, what is it called? The information deficit hypothesis. If people just knew about it, then they would change. Or if people just cared more. And these things, I kind of see them just like ingredients and you got to have like all the right ingredients for the recipe to work. And when you know what all the ingredients are, then you can like kind of think through them all and figure out which ones to put here, kind of like a doctor figuring out sort of which bits on a, on a body to kind of push. But you just mentioned your study with the restaurants. Can you explain what the study was and what the big finding was with the water bottles and the restaurant? We spent uh, two months in a restaurant 
And uh, the first month uh, we collect the data without uh, like uh, touching anything and uh, just watching. And it's called the control condition. And uh, we measure how many times uh, there were a request of uh, tap water and of a bottle of uh, water. So we just measure the amount of uh, tap water requests or uh, bottle water requests. And um, second month, we show a message. So six uh, posters on the wall, 50 times 50 centimeters on the six walls of the restaurant with a message that say two in three people from this area drink tap water. And we measure, again, the request of tap water and uh, bottled water. And uh, we found that just showing this, uh, we call it a descriptive social norm, because it's a message that somehow describes uh, what the others do. Make the bottled water decrease the plastic bottled water sales by 12%. So it means that there were a decreasing of uh, bottled water of 12%. And it was significant. So it means that uh, because sometimes uh, people just show numbers, uh, but they don't say if it's significant or not, because 12% can also be not significant because uh, maybe on huge numbers is not significant. So there are a lot of, uh, of course, of uh, statistical problems on on this point, but uh, it was significant. So it means that just showing uh, on the wall that other people ask for tap water will uh, increase or decrease the request of bottled water of 12%. And I think it's a really nice result because it's a really simple uh, strategy or it's a really simple intervent that we did but uh, it got a really huge result because a lot of uh, bottled water were uh, saved. And the important part is uh, uh, here is the, the meaning of uh, descriptive social norms. So we are social animals. So when we know that other people do something, we are like somehow more willing to behave like them. It's like uh, the same... Uh, was found also in uh, recycling and also in uh, don't put the towel in a hotel when they are not uh, dirty. So there are a lot of, uh, in the literature, a lot of papers that um, present how the descriptive social norm can affect the behavior of the people. But the important part here is that probably as for tap water is a bit embarrassing uh, and uh, because uh, you will be judged from the others. So once you know that also the others are uh, willing to ask for tap water, your behavior changes. So I think uh, it's really impressive. So we are speaking about uh, hundreds of uh, bottled water saving that specific restaurant. And what if we do the same nudging intervent in other restaurants? Can you just provide some examples of what this social norm messaging is again, just so everybody's like really, really clear about it? So the one your message was two out of three people order tap water. Two out of three people from this area that was uh, in the north of Italy, now mountain region, drink tap water. So it means that uh, other people ask for tap water. 
you are not the only one that asks for tap water. And somehow you feel less uh, lonely asking for tap water. You are not the, the weird one or the strange one. So, of course, in the literature, there are a lot of uh, examples about uh, why people don't ask for tap water. It's not only related to being embarrassed asking for tap water like emotional uh, somehow reaction on related to this behavior. It's also because sometimes you are afraid that it's not safe. So that's why we decided to do this kind of experiment in a really safe place, let's say, because in the mountain, the tap water, it's really good. It's not that we are asking for tap water in a country where it's not that uh, clean uh, the place or all these things. It's in a safe place, so we somehow control for that variable, we say, in the lab. <laughs> but since we are not in the lab, we try to make all these decisions before we run the experiment. So, yeah, this is the descriptive social norm. And what might be some other examples of descriptive social norms and some of the other environmental psychology study like you mentioned the the hotel one with the towels with composting could you just come up with a few different ideas so people have heard this one from you which is two out of three people in this area choose bottled water what could be some other sort of examples or phrases that when people are thinking like how do i employ these this social norm phrases so right now we are uh, we finished to collect data in another restaurant and uh, that uh, descriptive social norm was uh, about food waste so the message said uh, like uh, an increasing number of people ask for a doggy bag you can also ask for a doggy bag in order to don't waste the food uh, so that was another example of uh, descriptive social norms so on food wasting and then um, at the beginning the descriptive social norms was uh, on the don't throw the garbage on the floor and uh, somehow it was not uh, really explicit the message because uh, it was just uh, once you see that the floor is clean for you it means that the other people are trying to leave the floor clean so it's somehow an indirect social norm because uh, you are trying to understand what's the rule there what's the social norm there it's to throw on the floor the garbage or not. So, for example, in a place that it's dirty, it's more likely that the people will do this kind of behavior because they understood that the social norm there is to leave the place dirty, so they don't care. That's why the single behavior matters because it's also as an effect on the other's behavior because the social norm doesn't have to be explicitly mentioned in a message. It can also be understood from the environment. From just watching other people. I mean, I just think that's so interesting about individual behavior. I think I wrote about it in my book, this idea of that when you're doing a pro-environmental behavior, it's not the impact of just your action. It's everybody who's seeing you. And then all those people, even if it's just unconscious, they're getting the message that this is how we operate now. This is our society. We bring reusable cups to Starbucks to get coffee. Sorry, you probably don't have Starbucks in Italy. It's probably a 
like a swear word. <laughs> we have Starbucks everywhere here in America. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, last, take you. Yeah, you opened Starbucks in Verona like some months ago, but it, it was like a huge uh, line because it was a, a rare event. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think they tried it. Australia has a very strong coffee culture where I'm from, and I think they tried opening Starbucks. There were protests yeah, and people were making flyers, <laughs> yeah. like egging it. I think there's like one Starbucks in Melbourne, and um, they just sell like these milky frappuccinos and they're I think just the Chinese students go, the Australian people will like never go because it's not cool enough for us. But anyway, anyway, so yeah, so bringing your coffee cup, you know, riding your bike, bringing your reusable bag, like if you're doing it publicly, like everybody's watching you. Even if they're not like watching, watching, they're getting that message that this is what we do. And that is a social norm because people don't want to be the awkward one who's not doing what the group is doing. Yeah, you're right. There was also another experiment, I remember correctly, in Stanford, where uh, the social norm was uh, don't buy bottled water from the machine, just uh, refill your uh, uh, your bottle. And all the people uh, that bought uh, bottled water were really, uh, like, um, somehow became out group. So they were pushed out of the group. Like the other were looking at them in a really bad way, like, what are you doing? And so they found also that the, when you are judged from the other, you tend to follow the, the group. Because uh, I think it's also related to the past uh, when we were uh, like primitive and uh, we had to stay in the group to survive. So it's, uh, we are social animals because uh, in group we are uh, stronger. Even though the roots of this can be very strong in terms of being tribal animals, that if you got kicked out of a tribe, you could experience certain death. But I think still in day-to-day life, being liked and accepted in your social community is still really important. You can still be socially ostracized by people around you if people think that you're weird or, you know, doing something wrong. I mean, I notice with my daughter, I do a lot of good parenting things. Well, not say a lot, but I do some good parenting things, not because I'm trying to be a good parent, but because I don't want other parents to see me do something wrong. Like say if my daughter goes out with like really dirty clothes, like I don't really care that much if the clothes are dirty, but like I don't want the other parents to think that I'm like irresponsible. Or sometimes I give her something healthy to eat, like in front of other people, because I'm like, I'll feed her a chocolate if we're at home. But like, I don't want everyone, all the other parents, like thinking badly of me. And I'm really conscious of thinking it. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to give me eye rolls. They're going to think I'm a bad mother. Like, it's not an unconscious thing. It's a very conscious, like, I really wish I could be lazy and do the lazy thing, but I'll do the good thing because of, you know. And it's like, you would think that the parenting instinct would be so much stronger than the social norms instinct, but it's, I find it's not, I mean, for, for little things like this. But I just notice it come up so much in my own behavior. Yeah, it happened the same uh, to me with my daughter, because uh, sometimes I feel like, oh, I have to behave like this because there are others that are watching me. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, I think the idea of being perceived as a bad or a lazy or an irresponsible parent is just such a horrible feeling. Like, I just <laughs> the last thing you ever want is, like, other people to think you're a bad mother. Yeah, it happened the same here <laughs> in Italy. So it's something that it, it's not cultural. <laughs> I think. When I was reading your paper about the posters, which I think could be an, an interesting um thing to think about. So you put these posters that said the social norm message, which said, 
the two out of three people order tap water. Oh, before I ask this question, let me ask this other thing. Does Do norms only work if it's more than half of the people or more than like 80%? Like if the poster said one out of three people, and so I'm really curious because a lot of these environmental behaviours, like not that many people do them. Like you could say like 9% of people have electric cars. Like if you say 9%, which is kind of a lot than what it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, nobody had electric cars. So like is there like a cutoff when it stops working? Because I just, you see this, I mean you probably see this as well, this kind of like mistake, I would call it like a social messaging mistake where it's so common in environmental messaging to say the bad thing like only 2% of people go plastic free, only 1% of people are vegetarian. So that's why you should because hardly anyone is doing it. And I'm like, no, no, please don't use that sort of messaging. Like where would you pin the cutoff when you should, say how many people are doing it for it to work so uh, that's a really complex question but um, of course the answer is it depends because uh, it depends uh, if for example uh, if you as you said uh, the electric car you can also say instead of nine percent you can say an increasing number of people since it's increasing so you are uh, somehow framing the message in a more positive way instead of, say, 9% of the people. So you are showing that it's increasing. So we are going in this direction because, of course, 9 compared to 100, it's really little. So as you said, it's really important, the numerical component, let's say. And uh, we have to say also that different uh, numerical formats also can lead to different perception of number. For example, 9% is not the same that to say 9 out of 100, and it's not like to say 0.0. Even if you are mentioning the same number, you still are rephrasing it in different numerical formats, and different numerical formats like frequency format, percentage, uh, probability format, they matter and they somehow make the perception of the number in a different, to perceive the number in different ways. So not only, say, an increasing number or 9%, but also 9% with the same number that can be 9 out of 100. So it's really a complex uh, question. But I would say that if it's lower than 50%, I would say say it's increasing instead of both the number. And if it's uh, bigger than 50%, I would mention the number. And I would mention it uh, not in a probability format, but in a frequency format. Because uh, from the literature, we know that the frequency format... Uh, it's more arousing somehow. So elicitate uh, more... Can you give an example of what that is? Like uh, instead of, say, uh, 9%, 9 out of 100. 9 out of 100. And you call that, sorry, the frequency or the probability? So the percentage is uh, 9%. 
nine out of 100 is the frequency for Okay, nine. I'm going to write that down because I've never heard that before and I'm going to totally <laughs> remember that. Okay, so if I just basically use the words nine out of 100 and I just don't use the percentage icon, nine out of 100, that's called the frequency. Is that the frequency one? Yes, there is a paper that I wrote with uh, Professor Bonini on uh, how the death for COVID uh, in using different numerical formats uh, can uh, arouse people in terms of emotion and this perception. So we use uh, five different numerical formats uh, and all these formats uh, affect somehow the reaction of the people in terms of emotions and uh, in terms of uh, risk perception. And uh, of course, we found that even if the five numerical formats explain the same identical number, they create somehow different reactions to people in terms of emotions and risk perception. Wow, that's so cool. So if I use, so was that the, the top performing one? If I say nine out of 100, that, that's always like the best way to say it. That's why you use two out of three in your poster. Yeah, yeah, yes. Because, for example, use nine uh, percent. Uh, it's not really that arousing, let's say, and uh, it's not the risk perception. It's lower. You know, I am like right this week designing up a tool to help building managers bring on energy changes, and I'm totally going to use this because I was thinking through all of that exact stuff just yesterday. But what was the worst one? You said you tested five different types, or the worst two? What- we want to avoid. And we did the same also on pro-environmental behavior. So it was uh, that for um, pollutions, air pollution. So it was the uh, one in X, let's say, in this case was uh, nine. Then there was the absolute value, the number of people that died for COVID or that died for air pollution. Then there was the row. We call it the raw condition that was uh, this amount of people out of a population of this amount of people. Then there was the percentage format that was uh, 0.04% of the population died by air pollution, problems related to air pollution. And then there were the probability, and we said a person has a 0.0004 chance of dying by disease related to air pollution. So Wow, they sound so different. Like even before you even knew numbers, like when I think one in X people, I think so many people died. And then you think, obviously, I have a 0.004% chance of dying. Like it's like, who cares, you know? Okay, I'm fascinated. Which ones? Tell me what order they came out in. So the one that um, somehow produces more arousal in uh, all this. So we measure emotions and risk perception. And there was the absolute value. And this is one of the numerical formats of frequency numerical format, absolute value. And uh, it means that when you show the number of people that died for something, of course, it's a huge number. This means that it creates and it somehow affects your emotional reaction and your risk perception. So absolute value, as we say in the paper, it's not really a frequency format because it's just the number of people that died. But even if you put the number of people that died out of 
the population, that's a frequency format, it's uh, more arousing that just mention the percentage or the probability. Sorry, this is the raw number out of the total population. Is that the one that came in second? Yes. Okay, so many people out of so many millions of people. Yeah. Because, of course, uh, to see a huge numbers somehow matters and uh, more than to say 0.0000. But uh, if they would be rational, they should say it affects in the same way because they are the same numbers. Which one, which format came third? I'm ranking the effect of the number format. In these two papers, one was about COVID, so people that died uh, because of COVID, and the other was uh, people that died because of uh, air pollution uh, disease. So there are two different papers. Uh, um, in the paper with COVID uh, and also in the other, the frequency format matters more. It's more complex than that because uh, the risk perception uh, in literature is divided by three different components of risk. So if you want, I can <laughs> enter more <laughs> in the detail. But uh, So let's divide these five uh, different numerical formats into two big uh, subsets. One is the frequency format, uh, that is, the, for example, the... Um, absolute value even if it's not really a frequency because uh, it's just the number of people that died and uh, the other one is uh, the number of people that died divided by the population and uh, there is also another frequency format that is uh, one every 500 uh, habitants died by covid these are the three frequency formats and the two percentage format are percentage, so in Italy, or uh, we did it in Italy, uh, 0.23 people of 0.23, the percentage, let's say, of the population died by COVID, or a person has a 0.0023 chance of dying by COVID. These are the two probability formats, let's say. So if we consider these two subsets, the one that uh, affect more in terms of uh, emotional reactions and in terms of risk perception, so higher emotional reaction and higher risk perception is uh, the frequency format. This is a really uh, studied effect in the literature, the effect of frequency format and uh, probability format. But we studied in the lab uh, using uh, galvanic skill response uh, eye movements and facial expressions. In order to measure in a more objectively way the emotional reactions. So not only self-reported, but also using these tools that measure the galvanic skill response, the arousal when uh, the participant look at the screen, and the facial expressions, so positive emotions or negative emotions using uh, facial expressions. Yeah, it's so interesting that you studied it that way because you work in a neuroscience lab, right? I had another guest on the podcast a couple of years ago who also did a dot, you probably know what this is, a dot probe task. So looking at these eye movements to do with positive climate solutions versus negative impacts of climate change. And what's so fascinating about doing these lab-based tests on people's instant 
reactions. I think it tells this really powerful story, which is why we need to understand behavioral science and environmental psychology, is that we're triggering these instinctual responses in people that are not part of their intellectual cognition. Like they're not spending five minutes to think about it and then deciding how they respond. We have this kind of inbuilt apparatus that sort of triggers us in a certain way that we are not even really aware of these instant, that kind of like first one second thing. There was another, another guest had something that I thought was really funny is that he did um, these micro flashes of like smiley faces and frowny faces next to people's electricity when they were looking at their like smart meters of electricity, but they were only like less than a second. So people weren't consciously aware that they saw the smiley face or the frowny face and it still worked. Like it affected people's energy use whether they were consciously aware of this because uh, apparently our brain can tell faces even if we don't not aware that we see the face or the facial expression which is just crazy yeah of course uh, in this kind of situation maybe uh it's called the uh, fmri can be useful in order to understand uh, which part of the cortex are activated uh, when uh, you look at the stimulus or it's like a functional MRI where you enter and they will screen and they will see which part of the brain are activated. So, for example, even if it's not conscious or there is not, there is a lack of awareness on the faces that they saw, they still can understand if it was perceived by the participant because there were an activation of a different part of the brain. So... Yeah, it's really neuroscience. How big was the effect, though? Like, if I say nine out of 10 people or nine out of 100 people versus 9%, was it a, a big effect or just like a small effect by this frequency versus probability way of describing numbers? You mean uh, on emotions or on risk perception? Oh, I don't know, but I'm just wondering if it's like, like if it's like a big deal or is it just like so just a, it's significant, but it's only just sort of not that much? It was significant, uh, statistically significant. And we use the p-value in order to understand if it was significant or not. So, and we divided in different level of p-value. So it was a big effect. Uh, I mean, um, in terms of uh, emotional reaction and uh, in terms of risk perception. And it was really interesting because uh, there is a, we call it a deliberative part of the risk perception or an affective part of the risk perception. And it was uh, effective. It has an effect only on the emotional part of the. So it's like uh, somehow like uh, there are different explanations uh, why something matters and uh, the important part is trying to understand why it matters if there is an effect on your emotional reaction or on your deliberative so more rational part and uh, i think uh, with the self-report uh, you can't really understand that you can understand only using this kind of tools that somehow try to focus the attention on uh, discover what there is in the black box uh, that is our our brain our mind uh, the output is the behavior the output is the reaction but uh, 
try to understand uh, why it matters, why use the percentage or the probability or the frequency format. It's uh, elicitate something in different ways. And uh, through your neuroscience, we can try to understand uh, the black box in a better way. It's so fascinating to learn about. I wouldn't have thought that there was like this connection, although it's quite obvious when you think about it, between neuroscience and pro-environmental behavior, but there must be like its own world out there. But I did want to ask you something about the study that what really made me wonder about it is that you only tested two conditions. There was like no poster in the restaurants. And then there was the poster that said the two out of three people get the bottled water. Why didn't you test a same design of the poster with just a plain phrase that just says like it's better to drink tap water or it's not good to order plastic bottled water just a kind of a, a simple kind of environmental or just even a request like we're trying to cut down on plastic please try to avoid bottled water because in the other studies that I've seen test the norms they have something that's just a very like simple request and then they do different variations of phrasing of the social norm? Like if it just had a plain poster that said something like that, what do you think the difference might have been between, you know, was it just that there was a poster at all or was it that it had that two out of three message? All the time during the design experiment process, the researcher have to make decisions on how to design the experiment. As you suggested, it could be also another condition with different information on the poster, but it could also be, it's called the, the default uh, condition. So just give tap water as default, and then uh, they have to say if they want uh, bottled water instead of tap water. There are a lot of different conditions that are possible. And we decided to just uh, try to understand uh, the strictly social norm compared to the, we call it control group, so the the baseline. So what happened when we don't do anything and what happened when we show this uh, message? Also because it was a thesis of one of my students and it was a really simple experiment and it was a short paper on this uh, journal. So we decided to make it as simple as possible in order to understand if still there is a is significant and on this kind of uh, nudging strategy. So on the control condition and condition with the descriptive social norm. Yeah, and also I'm really I would like to talk more with the people from uh, not from the university or or from uh, the research uh, field because. Uh, to have more suggestions or idea, because sometimes uh, in the academy we still continue to read the papers of the other and we are somehow stuck in the same uh, place uh, with the same nudging strategies. But sometimes it's also useful to try to test something else and to have more creative way to solve uh, or to propose nudging strategies. So it could be also interesting to try to find... Um, a connection and uh, to receive suggestions from people like you or your group in order to test if one of the nudge strategy you mentioned is uh, effective or not in a more scientific way, let's say. Because sometimes you have an insight uh, on something and you say, 
and you say, oh, it can be interesting. Uh, and I think it works. Like the 0.004, you can understand even if you don't test it, that it's less arousing. But uh, the important part is uh, to measure and it's to test uh, if it works and it affects significantly or not. So I think it could be interesting like, to ask uh, to the people that are listening if they can like think about different nudging strategies to reduce the bottled water consumption in a restaurant or to waste less food. And it would be nice that the, the researcher use these kind of uh, suggestions to test uh, if they are uh, effective or not. Yeah, that's such like a cool point that you brought up about bringing, you know, creative solutions to be tested. Because when we come, like we think about like the academic world or the way I think about it, reading the papers, I think, oh, there's all this like history of like behavioral science and psychological theories. And it's very kind of like words on paper stuff, kind of theories and textbooks. You don't really think about it as a creative profession. And there's a very strict kind of analysis or design of experiments that any kind of academic or experimental process needs to go through. You don't really think of it as like an art project, right? But if we're trying to think of like really cool, interesting, exciting ways of shifting people's behavior, that is like a creative process. There's a, a guy called Ben Wong, or I think he goes by Von Wong on Instagram, and he makes these amazing like installations. He's like a like a physical, what do you call them, construction artist. I don't know what the word is, but like one thing he made was he made a big tunnel made of straws and it was a way to, you know, an art project that you just to encourage people to use less straws. You actually had to walk through this tunnel and it was really beautiful. It was using thousands of straws and this whole team of people had to make this big wave and you walk through it and it was lit up. And I think it might have even been sponsored by Starbucks or some company anyway. And he does many really fascinating big installations like this that kind of like tell stories. So he's like very much like entirely in the creative world. And you've got advertising companies, like storytellers, all these people that are trying to kind of think of like app designers, UI, UX, like people trying to come up with ways of influencing people through these creative mechanisms. And if you can kind of put the two together, like you can take this very sort of theoretically driven process to kind of experimenting, what is it about it that it's going to work on people to get them to shift their behavior? And can we augment the creative process or entity, if it's like a cartoon or a film or art project, installation, an app, to make sure that it really hits those kind of theoretical bases, you know, like you said, using these, the combination of norms and the frequency messaging in the project, you know, just for those two kind of worlds to come together. I think I've called it before um, creativity and causality. Yeah, bring creativity and causality together. I mean, that could be really amazing if we could start to really sort of think about these things, not as just like purely just like academic, let's use feedback and norms and all these kind of phrases that people don't necessarily understand. And then you've got this kind of creative world over here. By bringing them together, we could come up with new ideas for experiments, new things to test. And then yeah, bring it together. And you mentioned before earlier that you're an artist, right? You have an art background. So this probably resonates with you. Yes. I think uh, some of the nudging strategies that we mentioned before, like the cigarette one, or they are really creative. And uh, they really you really need to think uh, outside the box in order to 
find a solution that it's so creative. And I think it can be really interesting from an academic point of view, but also from a pro-environmental behavior point of view, because uh, after you find the, the one that works better, you can implement and try to decide for different uh, policies in order to push somehow in a in gentle way the people to adopt these kind of behaviors. I think it could be really interesting to do something like that. Because sometimes um, we are stuck, I mean, as I say, in uh, the solutions that we already find in the literature. Because the academic world uh, works like this. Uh, you always have to mention the work of someone else somehow. Because it gives you the authority to say, oh, I take this work and somehow I change something. And it's not something that... I decided by myself. So, for example, when we think about uh, food waste, uh, the descriptive social norm can be one possibility. But I never read anything uh, re on uh, the literature uh, related to what if we ask the people to give the food to the dogs. I mean, uh, try to find other solution instead of only use the descriptive social norm, the default effort, or this kind of uh, nudging strategies that are already studied. So I think it would be really interesting to receive all these kind of uh, suggestions and try to test them in order to understand if there is a nudging strategy that works better than uh, another one and to implement these kind of uh, nudging strategies. I think you might have already explained it earlier, but I just, I love to really dive into causality or the causal mechanism behind the social norm. You mentioned it triggers these emotional centers, this connection to the tribe. If you were to really crystallize, what is the causal mechanism behind why a social norm message works when another basically environmental message might not work? Like, how would you describe that? I think, uh, yes, as I said before, uh, it touched... Uh, and really important point for us that it's uh, the fact that we are social animals. So somehow it's like to trigger this idea that we want to be in group and not out group. So it's like um, a kind of priming somehow because uh, it's suggested as uh, that we want to be part of the group and doing that particular behavior, we will be part of the group. So... I think the social norms work because uh, we are social animals and because uh, reading that specific message, uh, we feel we are not out group. So that's the main, uh, the main reason. The different uh, nudging strategies work uh, because of different uh, psychological drivers work. So... Like, for example, the default effect, uh, it's not related on the social uh, component of uh, our behavior. It's more related to the fact that most of the time we are lazy. Like, uh, there were a paper about uh, print on the two pages or on the same page. And if the default uh, is uh, print on two pages, there will be an amount of paper really huge compared to default uh, print on the same page. So I think uh, the default uh, effect works because we are we don't want to change uh, 
what there is already as a default. So some one collection of nudges are in the, the social influence that we want to be in the in-group. We want to be doing what everyone else is doing. And there's another set of nudges that are do with habits and just default conditions and just sort of doing it because we're already doing it. Um, the last podcast I recorded was about this habits with um discontinuity theory, like when people are moving houses, they're more able to take on new behaviours because their habits get disrupted. And it was very much in the, the um, not about social imitation or social norms at all, just about the daily habits that we just get used to doing certain things and how can we like sort of disrupt those habits to be more environmentally friendly. So yeah, that's really two different sort of lenses to think about it through. And then there is also time discounting because uh, we prefer as something now instead of something bigger in the future because uh, it's not that in two days if we receive double it's okay i mean it depends also it becomes double or three times four times so we are a bit uh, particular let's say not rational at least and uh, that's why uh, there is what is called the bounded rationality because uh, we are not linear in our in reasoning or in the emotional reactions. Uh, so different nudging strategies use these different levels and these different uh, psychological mechanisms in order to affect the behavior. Right, through the bounded, I haven't heard that word before, through our bounded r- rationality. It means that we're somewhat rational, but we're not rational all the time, depending on what context we're in or the framing of the information. No, it's because at the beginning uh, we thought in the literature they thought that uh, we are uh, homo economicus, so extremely rational, rational that we always take the best decision for ourselves. And uh, after a while, <laughs> we, thanks to the psychological studies, uh, they understood that we are not really rational. So we are more bounded rational than rational because. Uh, not always we take the best decision for us, that we decide for the best deal, we take the... So I think uh, psychology helps a lot to understand this point that uh, was taken from uh, more um, from an economics field. So yeah, the Nazi strategies work because uh, we are not rational. <laughs> Let's say there's a meeting, right, with all of the people who do the sustainability and climate planning for cities, for a corporation. They sit down together, they have meetings. They're usually environmental scientists and environmental engineers, environmental planners, usually a science and engineering background, not a social science background. And they're trying to figure out, like, how do we change? How do we change everything? Or they have goals. They have sustainability goals, like 2030 goals, 2050 goals. And they're trying to figure out how to get rid of all the CO2, get rid of the plastic all the stuff that we have to do, what would you advise them as or us, the listeners, to be like the best practice or the gold standard of how we can bring in psychology, behavioral science into these roadmaps and plans that we have for our 2030 sustainability goals? I think that uh, most of the time there is a lack of knowledge on this kind of uh, topics. So some engineers maybe don't even know that there is a, an environmental psychologist or that there is this kind of literature in um, literature in terms of uh, thinking psychology decision making so i think sometimes it would be better to not only have the engineers but also psychologists 
in these kind of uh, meetings because um, we can uh, somehow give our contribution in order to make change the direction and uh, because some t- at the beginning maybe um, psychology were so as a not objective uh, subject because of Freud or the unconscious or all these uh, topics related to psychology but uh, now I think we are using numbers and measuring and uh, using uh, statistics uh, we are trying to really find the um, a way to change the behavior of the people and uh, in a measurable i mean that we can measure the the effect of what we do so i think the approach and the, um, what the others should think about psychology it should change because uh, psychology change a lot and the contribution can re- be really huge right now Where I'm starting to see how a research psychologist can help with sustainability plans is not just like coming up with like sort of the the cool ideas like, oh, you should phrase it with a social norm or we should use like a, a feedback loop and some social comparison or not just giving ideas. That's how I used to think of it. Like, oh, if you just, they'll just like help give a whole bunch of ideas that will help make the program more effective. But what I'm starting to see now is that a a trained research psychologist is able to actually test all of these things and be able to actually put the implementation of the community outreach campaign or the sustainability program that's asking people to sign up actually through a process of testing which bits of it are going to work on which types of people and being able to come back and say, well, that bit didn't work as well and we tried this and actually bring like a really rigorous testing structure to the implementation of a campaign. I mean, is that also how you see like how a, a properly trained research psychologists can can help with a sustainability program so for example in um, you know the papers that i wrote i always use uh, mathematical models in order to predict if a variable affect the dependent variable or not for example the dependent variable of the paper about the bottled water is uh, the number of uh, bottled water requests the independent variable is the presence or not, of the social norm. So what I said before, that it was significant, uh, it's because a mathematical model said that it was significant. So we are trying to, using numbers and uh, what is called uh, linear models, regressions, uh, generalized linear models, so different uh, tools from statistics, in order to understand if really has an effect. So. It's not something that uh, we say because it's, uh, yeah, it looks like it works. So um, I think it's important to combine statistics and psychology to give uh, the authority to say something. So it's not only that we are psychologists and uh, we think it can affect, then we say it affects. It's because we measure with numbers and with the using statistics, we understand if it's uh, significant or not. And also another important point that I think it's uh, there is a lack of knowledge on this specific point is that a lot of papers are already written on these different topics. And sometimes I feel like uh, there is um, 
not really an important literature review on what is already was written on this topic. So I think a lot of things we can already find and use from the literature in order to implement this kind of uh, policy. So it's important to read the literature because already in the literature there are uh, a lot of uh, examples of uh, nudging strategies that work or didn't work. So it's uh, stupid to make the same error if uh, we already found that that specific uh, nudging strategy didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that too, things that don't work. And then I'm just looking, you know, through all the environmental stuff around me and I just see so many mistakes being made. Like I can just tell by looking at it, I'm like, this isn't going to work because it's making this error and this error. And I mean, people just don't know. It's taken me a long time to learn like what doesn't work and what does work and then understand the theoretical background because I do read these papers um, that people are, without realising it, making terrible mistakes. But there is also a problem, I think, also from the academic point of view because uh, you publish a paper of only if you find uh, an effort. And uh, I think it should also they should also present papers with no effect at all because it helps to understand oh they already tried and there was no effect so it means it, it doesn't work but uh, we prefer to have effects and to show that there was an effort so most of the time researchers when they don't find an effect they are really sad because they say they they found that uh, what they did what didn't have an effect but i think uh there should be a journal that also presents not effect papers. The, the it didn't work because, journal. We yeah. tried it and it didn't work. Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, it's, it's important also to know this kind of thing because uh, if you try a, an agile strategy and didn't work, it's important to know because uh, you will not implement that kind of uh, strategy. They do have them every so often. I see in the environmental psychology uh, journal that I peruse, but it is kind of boring. Like I'll look at it and it'll be like, we showed that it didn't work. And it's like, we tried this and we tried that and we found that the results, that kind of nothing happened. And it's a little bit like, it's kind of depressing to read it because you, we just like want to have that like cool thing that happened. But the cool thing that didn't happen is equally just as informative for us, but it's not fun to publish or read. But what are, you, what are you most excited about in your future research that kind of extends in the environmental world? What would you like to, to study coming up? I would really like to use these uh, studies more in practice. I would like to like uh, really work not for, I mean, I like to work at the university to publish in uh, academic journals and all this kind of thing, because I think it's really important, the theory, and it's really important to have a an important uh, and solid background on these kind of things. But I also would like to be useful for someone. So to use all this knowledge and uh, these tools that I learned uh, to be helpful for the society and to be helpful for the, for, uh, to nudge people in the right direction. Well, hopefully this podcast episode will be a little drop in the water of that. It'll get out to a, um, a few hundred or if we're really lucky, a few thousand environmental people that, that can implement it. But it would be cool. It'd be cool if there was like a, um, I don't know, like a system or it just became normal practice to have 
research psychologists working on these teams that design these roadmaps and these big sustainability plans and systems really on the implementation of how to get traction. Because it it seems like we're really good as an industry of knowing like what it is to do. Like they'll be like, we need like this many wind turbines and this much solar and we need, like they all can map out all of the engineering that is required and the systems change and the policies, all the, the, the policy people can be like, we need these laws, we need that. But where everybody feels get stuck is in the, like the how. It's okay, okay, and how are you going to all do that in 10 years? And that's where it really comes into this world of social influence. We have to convince everybody to accept this, all these different sort of sort of changes. And I feel like our whole profession sort of falls off the cliff a bit when we're sort of at that cold face of like, how do you get people to really, really adopt it? So it would be amazing if there was a, like a sort of a, it just became like normal practice to have environmental psychologists. Now there are more of them around, we know they exist, to work but both in the coming up with ideas, but also in that, you know, that studying and, and that sort of advising. So our whole profession doesn't fall off this cliff of implementation. And then we're just like, oh, we have the roadmap, but it's like really hard to actually like get anybody to do anything. Yes, it would be amazing <laughs> and useful, I think. And this is my, my final question for you. Imagine you could look 100 years into the future and it was a really positive place. We'd reached many of our environmental goals and your passions for nudges and environmental psychology and uh, behavioral economics had been implemented, what's one big change that you think you would see in 100 years that would be amazing? The big change, I think, uh, would be that the single person uh, would think that also his own behavior matters. Ooh, that's big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of the people. And why? Why that? Because uh, it's uh, it's important that uh, we all understand this point because uh, if we don't understand this point, uh, we will uh, continue to think uh, that maybe the other can do something, but uh, our effect on the planet is not that huge. So uh, I think uh, if the single person starts to think that is behavior matters, then uh, we will really see a change in the world. But uh, until that moment, I think uh, we will only see maybe small groups uh, that uh, are judged from the other as uh, weird or as uh, that they are exaggerating. Uh, But uh, I think uh, the lack of knowledge on the effect of our behavior on the planet, it's the most important issue. Mm. So that real connection to um, every individual person's agency and their efficacy in what they do. The causality of their behavior, yeah. Yeah, it's my favorite word, causality. (laughs) But in statistics, there is a... It's a correlation or causality. So it's a... An important topic also in statistics because we always uh, see that there are maybe two variables uh, varies and they are correlates, but we don't really know what's the the direction. If one variable on the other or the other way around. So causality it's really a an important word to, word to use, and it's really 
it becomes an issue sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like the whole theme of this podcast really is to just explore the causality of change so people can implement it in their stuff in, in the right way. And it really does come down to that issue of, of causality. And we're not taught it. Like I went to engineering school. We did not learn this idea of causality in a social change context. And I've never even heard it talked about in any of the environmental meetups or conferences I've been to. We just don't really like discuss it. It's really looking at the world like it's a machine. And then we need to just sort of adjust the machine that there aren't these kind of social causal mechanisms or we get it really wrong. It's like, it's because people are greedy. It's because they're selfish. Like there was a really popular meme that was going around all around Facebook and it had a famous climate scientist and it says, as scientists, we don't know how to address greed and selfishness. And I was just like, that's so mean. It's like, oh yeah, we're in this problem just because everybody's like greedy and selfish. It was so, and of course he's not greedy and selfish, the climate scientist. He's like Jesus and everybody else is bad. And it was just this constant viral meme. I just kept seeing it over and over and over again. I thought this is terrible that this way of thinking is going out rather than, you know, if he's a scientist, he should be able to take a scientific approach to the social sciences and figure out, like, what's the real reason why, the real psychological reasons. Anyway, I'm really glad that you brought up that issue of causality. Causality, causality, causality. What a wonderful thing to explore. When there are a lot of variables, it's always complex to try to find uh, the causality. But we try. Yeah, and I think better to have it being an open, complex discussion, sort of like a maybe a computer with like many, many options open, rather than to make a mistake and think that the causality is like wrong, to think that it's all just because people don't know enough or it's all money, which is what I feel like happens. I think it's much better to be like, we're not quite sure, there's a whole lot of opportunities, rather than pigeonholing causality into like one thing is usually the wrong way to think. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alicia. I, it was just such a joy to explore your world and all of your thinking around this subject. And I really loved your paper. Just the simplicity of the design was so great. Some of these papers are really complicated. It was just such a simple intervention that I think like literally anybody could do. Anybody working in environmentalism can put posters up somewhere. And just to have this just very stripped down elegant like simple message and to show the effect that it really worked was really cool and inevitably as always in the podcast we can start with something simple but it ends up going down all these rabbit holes of very complex theories which is and I, I learned a lot from this this conversation so thanks so much for joining me and I think the listeners will appreciate it too thank you what another amazing conversation Thank you for listening to the How to Save the World podcast and for your interest and passion in environmental psychology, gamification and behavior design. It's an amazing thing I get to do to interview these fascinating people and draw out this knowledge that's contained in the Journal of Environmental Psychology, the Journal of Environmental Behavior Design and others and extract this knowledge and put it into these conversations that you can so easily absorb. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to my website at katiepatrick.com. I have a host of free resources that you can download there to learn the kind of measurement-driven behavior and gamification design that I do. And if you want to take a really deep dive into the process I follow to design amazing dashboards and apps and campaigns and concepts that actually drive real humans to take action, you must sign up for my Gamify the Planet program and do the Behavior Mapping Bootcamp course. 
You sign up for Gamify the Planet on Patreon. It's $25 a month. It's basically almost free for the amount of value and intellectual and design expertise that's in there. And the real signature course and process that I really want you to learn that's in the Gamify the Planet group is this behavior mapping process. It's 10 steps that start with what I call the God metric the core environmental metric that you want to change. And then we go through a process that's similar to what they call user story mapping in software design. And then we go through nearly 100 different data and gamification and behavioral psychology techniques and see how they all fit together and then come out the other side with a surgically well thought out, smooth, elegant and evidence driven concept that is going to get the attention first and foremost of the people that you need to reach and then it will use these behavioral psychology hooks in its design to get them to actually do the thing that you want them to do. It's a process, it's a formula, it works, it's all in there. Don't go through your sustainability, climate, environmental journey without doing this behavior mapping boot camp course. This system that I've laid out is core to everything I do. And it's my mission to get every single person in the world who is trying to influence anyone to save the planet at all to start using this process because it works. And being able to put it all together at such a low cost to the community is through the support and the contribution of my Patreon supporters. If you love this podcast, if you love this knowledge, if you would like to support my work in bringing this knowledge to you, please jump on to patreon.com forward slash Katie Patrick and you can make a monthly donation there. I send out Patreon only workshops, templates, podcasts and useful designs that I make that you can download every week for the Patreon community. And money is not the only way to support my work. If you're enjoying this podcast, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and you can leave up to a five-star review. Hit the follow button if you're on Spotify. Follow me on Instagram at katiepatrickhello and take a screen grab of this episode and share it on your Instagram stories and tag me. And you can also just DM me something that you really loved about the episode. It's truly a wonderfully rewarding experience to hear from you when you send me messages about these lightning bolt moments that you've had from listening to the insights in this podcast. Don't feel shy to reach out and send me a message. This is what this community of environmental psychology designers and activists and professionals and deep, deep sustainability nerds is all about. Thank you for listening. And now let's get back to work making Saving the Planet the greatest game we've ever played. <laughs>